Well, as noted, this morning we begin a new sermon series, this looking at some of the favorite and key psalms in the book of Psalms. And we're going to start not at number one this morning, (laughs) but at Psalm 25, because I have a plan. (laughs) No, actually, I think this psalm, as I will mention later, captures much of the essence and the heart of the Psalter. And I wanted to begin here because I think it fits so well with... uh, some of the themes and ideas that we want to explore as we go through the Psalms. So we'll begin at Psalm 25. This is one of the Psalms of David. A prayer, a plea to the Lord God. Let me read it for us as we come before the Word of God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Let's join our hearts together once again in prayer as we come before it this morning. Our God and our Father, again, we ask that you would bless this time that we have before your word. Once again, we ask that you would Fulfill your own promises about your word, that it goes out and does not return to you void, that it goes out and accomplishes everything that you purpose for it, that it goes out and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we plead that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears to see and hear the things that you would have us learn this morning. Make your word, Father, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. All of this we lay before you in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. 
Well, the sermon title this morning is Soul Music, and I picked as a series title for this series, Divine Soul Music. Now, here's what I don't mean by using that title. We don't interpret the Psalms through soul music. Don't want to get that impression that might be out there. We don't understand the Psalms by looking at secular soul music. But what I think we can say, and the reason I wanted to to draw our attention to that genre, is I think soul music and those types of music that are related to it that we have today in our culture are the closest we have in the secular world to expressing the deep and powerful emotions that we find in the Psalms. Now there's old music that does the same thing. You can go back to Handel and Bach and there's nothing that stirs my soul that, than, than sitting down and playing through a Beethoven piano sonata. There's great music out there that stirs our soul, but there's something, if you go back and listen to some of the great soul music, well, we get it. We understand it. It speaks to our hearts. And despite the British invasion of the 1960s, soul music was the most popular genre of the 60s and 70s, and it remains popular today, still undergoing change and and adaption. What is it? What is soul music? Well, the simplest explanation is it's the secular version of the old gospel music. That's what it came out of. Or even further back to the old uh, Negro spirituals that the slaves sung in the 1800s. It brings in elements of jazz and it brings in elements of rhythm and blues. Borrows from pop music and whatever it can get. Started in the 50s and 60s, you've got people like James Brown and Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin. You had developments in Detroit, Motown. There's Chicago soul, there's Memphis soul, there's New Orleans soul. It grew and developed and gained different forms of expression. And what's interesting to me is when you go back and look at that era, while other pop music was focusing mostly on what John Lennon called silly little love songs, soul music was expressing deep, heartfelt longings. So they didn't just sing about Sweet Sixteen, or why I want to hold your hand, but they sang songs about the pain of a breakup. She left me. Have you seen her? The desire for respect. The pain of pretending to be someone that you're not. The tears of a clown. The love of one's home. Georgia on my mind. Pain of loneliness, sitting on the dock of the bay. But there was also joy, dancing in the street. There's also faith and trust. My girl and my guy held up as paragons that we look to. I will, you don't have someone like my girl. You don't have someone like my guy. Even just simple optimism. Earth, Wind, and Fire, sing a song. These are great songs, and they appeal to our hearts. Great range of emotion and experience, much of it very painful and sorrowful and 
and bluesy, laments we might call them, but also some that are very positive and optimistic. What I see in, in this kind of music, and really the music of the world around us in general, is what we've talked about before. The world is looking for answers. They're looking for ways to express what they feel and, and understand it and, and gain relief from it. Soul music is an example of that kind of search. Give me something to believe in, even if it's just my guy. Even if it's just my girl. A way to deal with and express the ups and downs of life. But ultimately, ultimately it leaves you empty. Pretty soon my girl leaves. And the Commodores write a bitter song about breaking up. Sail on. They're not talking about getting on a boat. Sail on, baby. I'm going to live the good life and take my revenge. It's empty. Ultimately, it has nothing. And I think the sad thing is as much of popular music now has devolved from those deep-felt expressions of, of the emotions of our innermost soul to just simple greed and lust. And that's kind of a sad development. But what the world is looking for, what the world longs for, what it expresses in things like popular music, including soul music, we have. The church has it. And when I look at the Psalms, and when I look at Psalm 25, what I see is powerful soul music. Incredibly powerful music for the soul. Again, expressions of the heart and soul of men and women, the pain, the sorrow, the joy of life, hope and faith, fears, praises, questioning and questing and searching for answers. Those are in the Psalms. But they don't just end there. They don't just end looking for something. They always find resolution. They always find the solution. They always find the answer in God, resulting in gratitude and praise. So I think the Psalms are given to us by God as medicine for our souls. That's why I call it divine soul music. Speaks to our souls. Speaks to our very being. It's the inspired word of God for us. But it's also the words of men to God. Men wrote these psalms. These are their heartfelt expressions. Inspired by God, it's the only book of the Bible that has that odd combination. God is showing us in the psalms how to talk to him, how to sing to him, how to pray to him, how to pour out our hearts to him, in ways that, boy, when you really look at it, it seems a little bit shocking. We're all a little bit too careful sometimes in how we talk to God. Well, I don't want to say that that way. David didn't have a problem saying it in the psalm. We'll see an example of that even in this psalm this morning. So it's worth getting familiar with the psalms because 
we can find in them the songs and the prayers that express our own feelings, our own situation, our own sorrows, our own joys. But we can also get familiar with the Psalms because they teach us about God, the answer to those issues. They teach us about his faithfulness and his love and his attributes and his character, about his promises and his record of keeping those promises. These Psalms teach us about ourselves and they teach us about God. And is there anything better worth learning? So again, I picked Psalm 25 to begin this series because I think as a psalm it captures these kinds of ideas in one psalm. It's a psalm full of longing, but it's also a psalm of hope and of faith. Technically, in Hebrew, it's an acrostic, following the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which probably means it was meant to be memorized or structured that way so it could be more easily memorized. But it begins and ends with a prayer. Verses 1 to 7 and verses 16 to 22 are prayers of David. Smack dab in the middle of that, from verses 8 to 15, is a section of praise to God. But at its heart, the way it begins and the way it ends, this is a psalm of the soul of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And then the prayer at the end, guard my soul and deliver me. It's a heartfelt, soulful expression of faith and a plea to God to vindicate that faith with hope because God is a God who will vindicate that faith. I want to begin in the middle of the psalm. Look at the praise first because this is the basis upon which David can make his prayer. So I want to look at verses 8 to 15 first. David is going to entrust his soul, nephesh, the Hebrew word that means his entire being, the essence of who he is in its totality. He's going to entrust that soul to the Lord. And if he's going to do that, he needs to know what kind of God is this that I'm about to trust? Is he dependable? Can he be counted upon? So David affirms a number of truths about God, and these give him confidence, and they instruct us about the God that we, like David, serve. The God, like David, that we have reason to hope and to trust in. Verse 8, he's a God who is good and upright, and as such he instructs sinners in the way, does not leave them where they are, but teaches them a better way to go, his way the good and the upright way. Continuing to verse 9, he teaches, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Again, this idea of following God in his way. Verse 9 repeats and amplifies the ideas of verse 8. The humble sinner is the one who learns the way of the Lord. In fact, one must be humble to learn the way of the Lord. One must acknowledge one's sin and need for instruction. Instruction from the one who is good and who is upright. The idea continues down into verse 10. The paths of the Lord are steadfast to love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So the humble sinner coming before God will be taught by this good and upright Lord 
in his own ways. Not theory, not abstract philosophy or theology, but the very ways of the Lord himself. The Lord teaches humble sinners to follow his own ways, to follow him. What are those ways? Well, David tells us there's steadfast love, that covenant love that's translated as loving kindness or mercy, that love that doesn't fail, that's spoken of so often in the Old Testament. Steadfast love is a way. Faithfulness is his way. Love that does not fail is his way. Dependable and trustworthy is his way. Those who follow him will learn to act the same way, with faithfulness, with love, with mercy. So verse 11, what does the humble sinner do? (laughs) Plead to God. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. It is great. Not for me, for yourself. To show your steadfast love, to show your faithfulness, to show that you are merciful. Verse 12, who are those who fear the Lord? As opposed to those maybe who claim to do so? Well, those are the ones who are instructed in the the ways of the Lord, by Him, in the way He chooses. In other words, followers of God follow God. (laughs) Seems simple. But they submit to Him and His ways and not their own thinking or ideas. We can't come to God and say, well, my God does this, or my God does that, or my God thinks this way. The humble sinner submits to God and His ways and his ideas of, about life and about the world. And then the same one can say in verse 13 that his soul will abide, will dwell, will remain fruitfully in well-being. Even his offspring will inherit the land, which in David's time was the most valuable possession they could have, a source of income and security. But what's the best thing our offspring inherit today? Not land, but Christ himself. Our true inheritance. Remember from Galatians, the true offspring of Abraham are those who are men of faith and women of faith like Abraham. And those offspring do have a rich inheritance. You can look at Hebrews 9, verse 15, or 1 Peter 1. Verse 4, we have a rich inheritance in Christ. The soul that abides in God has a rich inheritance. So David can say, in effect, it is well with my soul. It's all good. It's all good. And that's not just a saying for David. It's true in every sense. More amazingly, in verse 14, those who fear the Lord are friends of the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is with him. The Lord is my friend. An odd thing to say, maybe, but true. Bound together in a covenant relationship with one another. A covenant commitment, a covenant faithfulness. We're going to read this story later, but think of David and Jonathan and the powerful friendship and love they had for one another. They made a covenant with one another. God covenants with us and is our friend. 
And so we can have safety. We can be plucked out of the net. And so keep our eyes on the Lord forever, as verse 15 says. This is the basis for David's prayer. It's the center of the Psalms, structurally, to draw our attention to that as the basis. And leading into that and flowing out of that is David's prayer, the prayer of a very, very trusting soul. David's not some Pollyanna. He's not just some wishful thinking optimist. And he doesn't make this prayer to God from a position of comfort or safety or or wealth. David's in distress. Terrible, terrible distress. Look at verses 16 to 19 first to see the great distress out of which David prays his prayer. He's lonely. I am lonely, he says, and afflicted. Utter desolation. No one around anywhere. Great distress. He's overwhelmed by want, or some of the ideas in those words. I am lonely. I am afflicted. It says in verse 17, the troubles of his heart are enlarged. Today we would say our hearts are breaking. His desire, his great desires to be brought out from this great distress that he is in. And he wants God to consider, to acknowledge, to affirm that he knows David's affliction and trouble in verse 18. What is that trouble? Well, first, it's his own sin. And that's a powerful recognition. My, my trouble begins with myself. I am the cause of my own distress. Look also at verses 6 and 7. Don't forget your mercy, O Lord, cries out David. Don't forget your steadfast love that has been from of old. I mean, how could he? He's God. But he cries out for God to remember this so that he won't remember the sins of David's youth, his transgressions. Instead, remember me according to your steadfast love. Show me your goodness. You know, to know your own sin is embarrassing. Public embarrassment is one thing. We've had a couple of celebrity pastors be publicly embarrassed by their sins in the last year. But even more embarrassing than that, I think, is really to consider honestly myself, in my own heart and mind, the nature and the depth of my own sin. And to know as well, God knows it. (laughs) Because nothing is hidden from him. And before the Lord, that's terribly embarrassing. Yes, I, I acknowledge my sin. Please don't remember it. It's my own fault. Remember your love to me instead. Remember that you've forgiven my sin. Remember what you did in your very own son for my sake that I might be saved by grace and through faith. And if God has forgotten those sins, why in the world would you or I dwell upon them? Don't remember my sins anymore, says David. That's the first cause of my trouble. The second cause of his trouble, he's got enemies all around him. Consider how many, he says, and with what violent hatred they hate me, in verse 19. He's not holding anything back in that description. I have loads of enemies, and they despise.
despise me. Consider this, Lord. Consider the state that I'm in. How people hate me so greatly. Too often life is that way when it seems like people are against us, all around us, and for no good reason. It's terribly distressing to be in that kind of a situation. We've talked about this because we see a growing sense of this in our own society, in our own world around us. Christianity and Christians, those who really do follow God and his ways, as David has said, is what a humble sinner does. Submitting to those ways are violently hated. Have you read the vitriol? In newspapers and magazines and on the internet, have you seen people interviewed and the things they have to say about Christians? The hatred. Have you seen the way Christians are treated in the Sudan, in Nigeria, in the Middle East, in China, in India? They hate us. (laughs) Consider how many are our foes. Lord, remember, look. Look how they hate us so much. So we can relate to David. He's not expressing anything that we haven't gone through and experienced in some degree as well. So David's appeal is our appeal when we are in similar situations. And what does he ask for? What does he ask God to do? Strike down my enemies, cut off their heads, beat them into a bloody pulp. No, guard me. (laughs) They're going to attack. I just want to be guarded. Guard my soul, he says in verse 20. Deliver me. Don't let them cause me harm. But more important than that, don't let me be put to shame, for I have taken refuge in you. It closes out the psalm and bookends the way it begins in verses 1 and 2. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let let not my enemies exult over me. This is David's plaintive cry. I want to come back to that, briefly look at another part of David's prayer. He knows who God is in verses 8 to 15, and so part of his prayer is, verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, is that he would know the Lord in his paths. That the Lord would make them known to him and teach them to him and lead him to truth, what he anticipates in verses 8 through 10. And he trusts the Lord will do this because he is the God of salvation and he is David's hope. For you I wait, he says twice. Verses 5 and 21. So essential for David's hope in the Lord is that this is a God who, when he calls upon him, has taught him his ways, leads him and saves him and forgets his sin. This is the God that David is appealing to. And so now we see his plaintive cry that opens and closes the psalm. And what David is saying essentially is this. Lord, I'm going to trust you with my whole being, everything I've got, my soul, Don't let that trust be misplaced. Don't let me be shamed because I trusted in you. That's what shame is about in Scripture. It's not just embarrassment. It's the idea of being let down by someone or by something. 
of being disappointed because you put your trust in something that you shouldn't have. Because in the end it proved to be untrustworthy. This is not God. and It's not the hope that we have in God. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 5, hope does not put to shame. Hope does not disappoint. So when David says, don't let me put to shame, what he's saying is, God, I'm going to trust in you. Don't let me down. He's saying that to God. To the God of the universe. Now we hear that all the time between people. I heard it myself in work situations. I had a a recruiter who hired me to my first job out of college, putting me into a kind of a special position. He said, don't let me down. Don't let me hear that you failed. (laughs) Prove it to me. In the Psalms, it's the cry of the afflicted, troubled, distressed heart. But in this case, not to a fallible human, but to a God who is trustworthy and faithful. And David immediately acknowledges that in verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Instead, those who wantonly are wantonly treacherous are those who will find shame. And, and I think the implication there is because they put trust in themselves rather than in God, or they put trust in other things rather than in God. So David doesn't accuse God, and he doesn't withhold any of his trust. He shares the distresses and afflictions and the, the pains and worry of his heart. I'm going to trust you, God. Do not be unfaithful. But soothes his heart with his sure knowledge of God, his character, his faithfulness, the covenant-keeping God, the God who forgets sins, the God who teaches humble sinners to follow in his ways. This is the music of David's soul, and he pours it out to God in distress, but also in faith. So the things we can learn from here is, I think, first of all, learn from David to be honest. He says to the God of the universe, don't let me down, in effect. But he also says, everything that's on his heart, his desires, his longings. He never doubts the faithfulness or dependability of God, but he's willing to pour out all of his emotions, his heart to him. Sometimes we're reluctant to do that with God because we think it somehow dishonors him or, or it's, it's unseemly in some way, shape, or form. But here's the thing. God knows him anyway. He knows it already. So if you hold it back, you're just lying to him. <laughs> so just be honest. Be honest with God about the deep longings of your heart. But also learn from David who wanted to learn from God, to learn his paths and his ways and his testimonies, knowing that they are good and faithful and an expression of God's steadfast love. We can be brutally honest with God because we serve a God who loves us and is faithful to us. There's lessons here for the unbeliever because I think David's cry applies even to those coming to faith. Think about that step 
of, of faith, initial belief. I'm going to come to you, repent, admit all of my sin. I'm going to look to you for forgiveness in Christ. And I'm going to trust you to do that for me, God. There's a deep cry of trust and faith in initial conversion. There has to be. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to commit my whole life to you, my soul. Save me, keep me, teach me, forgive my sins. I'm trusting, Lord, that you will do that. We talk about a step of faith, but it's a leap in some senses. I'm going to walk away from everything else that, I, that the world puts its hope and trust in. I'm going to leave that all behind and trust you. <laughs> How can I do that? Because of the God of verses 8 to 15. That's a great leap, but it's a leap that must be made. Don't let me down, Lord. Don't let my confession be in vain. Paul gives words of reassurance. He quotes Isaiah twice in Romans, first in 9.33 and then chapter 10, verse 11. Those who believe in God will not be put to shame. They will not be disappointed. You'll go through trials. You'll go through difficulties. You'll suffer. You'll have sorrow and pain. But he will guard your soul. He will deliver you. He will not let you be put to shame. And at the last day, every single believer will be vindicated before the judgment seat of God. And so that trust isn't just for when we come to faith. It's a trust that has to exist and be prominent in our Christian walk throughout our whole lives. It's an ongoing trust, and it's an ongoing hope, and it's an ongoing dependence on the Lord our God. The Christian must, day after day after day, reaffirm that simple cry, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Don't let me down. It's the ongoing prayer. Make me know your ways, like David in verse 4. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth. Teach me. I wait for you. And the beautiful thing is, 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 as the believer walks with the Lord and grows and matures in faith, well, we know and learn to trust the Lord more and more. We learn more about His steadfast love. We see the ways that He shows it. We study His Word and see it there. But we see it in our own lives. We've seen it here in the short life of this small congregation. The Lord has a steadfast love for His people. We learn the faithfulness of God. And we learn to be faithful in return. And live that way. The path that the Lord shows us isn't necessarily a pretty path. Oh, would you look at that path over there? Isn't that nice? It's a path to be walked on. It's a path to be lived on. It's a path to follow Him down. Wherever it goes to the valley of the shadow of death. We can do so in confidence and safety. Even in the midst of all the distress and trial and affliction, the loneliness, the sorrow, the pain, the persecution. Because we serve a God who does redeem us out of all of our troubles. That's the way the psalm ends.
We serve a Lord who redeems us out of all of our troubles. That is true. That is wonderful. So with David, lift up your souls to the Lord. Put your trust completely in him. You will not, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are disappointments and trials and troubles and sorrows. And in the midst of those, there seems to be disappointment and discouragement as well. We heard from the Tenth Commandment this morning, the call to be content with what you have given to us, whatever our lot in life is. That is a hard command to obey, Lord. It is hard to see past the disappointment and the discouragement. But remind us of who you are. Remind us of your great love for us. Remind us that you have forgotten our sins and that you protect us from our enemies. And that there is a day coming, a glorious day, when you will redeem us from all of our troubles and establish us in your presence with love and joy and peace forever. As John is told so often in Revelation in his visions, this is a call for patient endurance. Sometimes it's hard to be patient, and so we ask that you would give us the strength by your word and by your spirit to patiently endure, to love you with all of our hearts, to entrust our souls to you, and we ask you, Lord, do not disappoint us. Do not let us be put to shame. Do not let our enemies mock us. Glorify yourself and all that you do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.